0: This is Storical, a monthly podcast and companion piece to Immortal Perfumes. In this series, we'll do a deep dive into the life and times of history and literature's most intriguing subjects, then discuss the best pieces of pop culture where you can get your historical fiction fix. I'm your host, J.T. Seams, the potions master at Immortal Perfumes. Join me on a journey through time and the ghosts of words past. This month's entry is the tale of a moody king whose desire for a son led to the English Reformation. Welcome back to another month of historical, my dear listeners. This June is one of those months with five Mondays, so I'm cutting myself some slack and broadcasting a replay episode today. This week, we're revisiting King Henry VIII, who was born on June 28th in 1491. I mentioned this on a podcast episode, or maybe it was a blog recently, but right now with all the uncertainty in the world... I find myself gravitating toward any Tudor-related books or media. It's a story I know well, which is weirdly comforting, especially when you think of how violent it really is. But because Henry and the full cast of characters are so fascinating and dramatic, there are so many different points of view you can re-engage with the story. So sit back while we take a journey to the opulent court of a once handsome Renaissance king who would later become a tyrant. Chapter one air, and despair. You know about King Henry's obsessive lust for a son. Well, there's some backstory that helps explain why this was such a big deal to the king. Any serious examination of Henry has to start with the War of the Roses. Maybe you vaguely remember hearing about the Wars of the Roses in high school. Well, here's your one-minute breakdown. England had an ancient line of kings, called the Plantagenets. The Plantagenets ruled England from around 1150 to 1485. Now this line was comprised of two branches, the Lancasters and the Yorks. The Lancasters were symbolized as red roses and the Yorks had white roses. From about 1455 to 1485, there were several civil wars in England due to the rivalry of these two houses and their individual quests to control the throne of England. And if this sounds like Game of Thrones to you, think about it, Lancasters, Lannisters, that's because George R. R. Martin looked to the War of Roses for inspiration for his fantasy series. Now, in 1485, Richard III was on the throne. He was considered a usurper because he was regent for the two princes commonly referred to as the princes in the tower who mysteriously disappeared. They were the children of Edward IV and the sister of Elizabeth York. Henry Tudor was the sole surviving male claimant of the throne from the Lancastrian line. On both the Lancaster and the Yorks' sides, the constant war had decimated the men in each family. Henry's claim was a little shady. He could trace his lineage to kings, but only through an illegitimate line. So the fact that Richard III was pretty unpopular worked out in Henry Tudor's favor. He was able to amass an army, and when he met Richard at the Battle of Bosworth Field, Henry Tudor killed Richard and took the crown. And fun fact about Richard, just a couple of years ago, Richard's remains were found under what had become a parking garage. Okay, that was your one-minute recap of the War of the Roses. I hope that you're still with me. That was a lot of English names. With Henry victorious, the War of the Roses was officially over. But these families had been fighting for so long, and there was, understandably, still some bad blood. In a show of unity, Henry, who is now styled Henry VII, married Elizabeth of York, hoping to unite the two families to not only stop the fighting, but also to strengthen his claim to the throne. Now, before we get into their marriage, some tea. There's not really any way to know either of these two factoids for certain, but there were rumors that one, Richard III... Who is Elizabeth's uncle, had an affair with her and wanted to marry her, and two, that Henry VII raped her before their marriage to test if she was fertile or not. Neither of these are known for sure, but I know how much you love that piping hot historical tea, or at least I do. Now, with their arranged marriage, and you know all the killing of family members, Henry VII and Elizabeth, who are apparently both really beautiful people, did not like each other at first, but did grow to love each other over time. They had eight children, four of whom survived infancy. For those of you who are unabashed Tudor files, this is not going to be anything new, but for those of you who know nothing about Henry VIII, other than his penchant for wives, this is gonna blow your mind. I hope you're ready. Henry VIII was not actually supposed to become king. Henry VIII was the spare. Prince Arthur, his older brother, was born in 1486. Henry was born June 28, 1491. Because Henry was the second-born son, his parents didn't really pay as much attention to him as they had their hopes for a Tudor dynasty with Arthur. Arthur enjoyed the best tutors and received a princely education. Henry did as well, but to a lesser extent. Arthur was the heir, and Henry was the spare who would be sent for a church career. Remember that little nugget for later. Actually, just remember everything I'm telling you in this section because the War of the Roses, Henry's parents and brother, all of this explains so much about events that happened during his reign. Since no one expected much from Henry, there's not a whole lot that is known about his childhood. He apparently worshiped his mother and thought she was the kindest, most beautiful woman in the world, which does not shock me at all. We also know that his father, Henry VII, was kind of a miserly man and was very frugal. He wasn't into supreme shows of wealth, which, again, remember this for later. When you think of England, you probably think of empire and Queen Victoria and this mighty country that ruled basically the entire world. But back in these days, the English were the scrappy little upstarts. So when Henry VII was looking for a bride for his heir apparent Arthur, he turned to Spain. If he could convince Ferdinand and Isabella... Yes, that Ferdinand and Isabella that financed Christopher Columbus's expeditions to the New World. If Henry could convince them to allow their youngest daughter to marry Arthur, that was instant credibility for the English to the other European monarchs. Spain was also fabulously wealthy, so I'm sure that was on Henry VII's mind as well. I'm not going to go super into detail about this because we'll be here till next year, but during this time, there were several high-profile pretenders to the throne. These men claimed to be the princes from the tower that were Elizabeth's brother who disappeared when Richard took the throne. Henry VII spent considerable time and resources putting down these rebellions. In 1501, Arthur married, wait for it, Princess Catherine of Aragon, Ferdinand and Isabella's daughter. And why does that name ring a bell to you, you may be asking? Why, that's because Catherine was also Henry VIII's first wife. History is so scandalous, and I just love it. After only a few months of marriage, Arthur died. It's been long held that he was a sickly boy, but new research is indicating that he was actually healthy, but he came down with the sweating sickness, which was a very weird, terrifying, and fast-moving ailment that killed a lot of people during this period. Just one year after Arthur died, Queen Elizabeth, Henry's mother, died from a postpartum infection after after giving birth to her eighth child, who also died. Elizabeth's death put both Henry into a terrible depression. And this, dear listeners, is where we set our scene. Two ancient warring families were finally united, but this left a tenuous claim on the throne. The heir apparent was dead, putting the overlooked brother at the forefront, a position he never expected to find himself in and the beautiful young mother's sudden death and childbirth left behind a broken husband and king. Chapter 2. A Marriage and a Coronation Once Henry VIII was thrust into the spotlight as heir apparent at just 11 years old, his life changed dramatically. First, his miserly paranoid father kept Henry in virtual seclusion. While he'd previously been in a household with his mother and sister, he was sent away with only male attendants to basically undergo a crash course in being a king. He was never allowed to go anywhere by himself. Despite all that, and again, if you're not a Tudor obsessive, this may shock you, but Henry grew to be an extremely handsome, fit, athletic youth who towered over the common Londoner at a height of six foot two at a time when the average height was five foot five. Henry was also the epitome of a Renaissance man, He was an intellectual, one of the first royal children to be brought up with a humanist education. He was a gifted musician. Some even credit him with writing the song Greensleeves. He was interested in science, astronomy, art, and loved all manner of sports, particularly jousting. And unlike his father, Henry VIII was definitely one to appreciate the finer things. He had expensive, elegant taste and was always stylishly dressed and dripping with jewels. Ambassadors called him the golden prince. Reading about this lonely, restrictive childhood definitely reminded me of Queen Victoria's situation. And it's interesting to me how monarchs separated by some 300 years can be so similar. In any case, as all kings eventually do, Henry VII died in 1509. His son, Henry VIII, was the first prince in over 100 years to peacefully inherit the crown. And now that the old miser was gone, Henry was ready to make his mark, but first he needed a wife. Okay, so remember how before she became the Duchess of Cambridge, the British press used to call Kate Middleton "Weighty Katie? Well, let me introduce you to Catherine of Aragon, the original Weighty Katie. When Prince Arthur died in 1502, Catherine was basically locked away, a virtual prisoner. Henry VII didn't want to lose Catherine's considerable dowry. King Ferdinand had only sent over half the dowry, and the marriage contract had stipulated that if she should return to Spain, so too would the dowry. And for a while, Henry VII even entertained the idea that he might marry her to keep this dowry since Elizabeth of York had died, but that idea was nixed by Ferdinand himself. Then, Queen Isabella died, and Catherine's value as a marriageable princess plummeted significantly. So she stood in limbo for seven long years, struggling to cope in a foreign land and with hardly any money to buy things for herself and her entourage of ladies-in-waiting. Making matters worse, if she were to marry Arthur's younger brother, Henry VIII, they would have to get a dispensation from the Pope because of a little gem in Leviticus of the Old Testament that said, If a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall be childless. Catherine insisted that she and Arthur had not consummated their marriage. But with the sudden death of Henry VII at age 52, the new Henry VIII needed a wife's stat. Henry himself appealed to Ferdinand and the Pope, and all was granted. Henry's grandmother, Lady Margaret Beaufort, planned an exquisite coronation for the new king. He married Catherine in a low-key ceremony on June 11, 1509, and 12 days later, the two had their coronation at Westminster Abbey. Catherine was 23 years old, and Henry was 17. Now, here's something that totally blew my mind. Catherine and Henry were married for 24 years. That's right, 24 years. He had six wives, but the last five happened in the last 14 years of his life. And the way it's always been painted to me was that Catherine wasn't giving him his son, and he was completely smitten with Anne Boleyn and got his divorce. Like, this was something that happened relatively early on in their marriage. But no. 24 years and happily married 24 years at that Henry had told his father that he thought Catherine was the most beautiful creature, which I hope we can stop calling women creatures because that phrase really grosses me out. But anyway, he was in love with her. They were both pious. Henry wrote a defense of Catholicism when Martin Luther first posted his 95 theses to a church door and the Pope gave Henry the title defender of the faith. So much irony there. The couple also enjoyed masks, which were basically these theatrical plays and performances they would do to amuse themselves at court. Henry would decide on a theme, usually from mythology, put a mask on and would invade the Queen's chambers with other masked men in his entourage and have a grand old time playing Guess Who? I don't know. It sounds really hilarious and weird to me. His trust in Catherine was so great. That during one of his stints playing a knight in wars with France, he named her regent in his absence, and Catherine, ever her mother's daughter, actually commanded the army and defeated King James IV of Scotland, who died in this battle, no less. Not only that, but the English people loved Catherine. She was a true queen to them and did many acts of charity. Despite the fact that the pair were well-matched, as the years went on, Henry grew more paranoid about their lack of a son. Of their six children, only one survived, and that child would grow to become Queen Mary I, aka the one and only Bloody Mary from those creepy games you played as a kid. And here's some more knowledge I'm going to drop to blow your mind. One, it is believed that Henry was a virgin when he married Catherine, pious, remember? Two, it took him a while to take a mistress. It's believed he felt really guilty about it at first because he was so conservative in his marriage views. Three, Despite his popular image as this super lusty king, there were really only two confirmed mistresses. He may have had more. Historians aren't in agreement on it. But yeah, that kind of shocked me. During these early years, things were relatively peaceful. He kept trying to invade France because he grew up believing that war brought immortal glory to kings and England had an ancient, dubious claim to the French throne. But ultimately, Henry was also very interested in peace between nations and building up his country to be a cultural center of the world with artists, musicians, and philosophers. Sir Thomas More, writer of Utopia, which I'll be real, I only knew who he was because of that movie Ever After with Drew Barrymore, he was a big cast for Henry's court. The last person you need to know from this time period was Cardinal Wolsey. Wolsey was the son of a butcher who was ambitious and quickly rose through the ranks. Despite being a cardinal, He was also morally ambiguous. He managed to insert himself as the Lord Chancellor for the King, and literally every piece of business went through him. Wolsey really liked the French, but not so much the Spanish, much to the detriment of Queen Catherine, especially when a mysterious, dark-haired beauty named Anne Boleyn came to court. Chapter 3, Above Everyone, Anne. We need to back up just a little bit to introduce a few more players to our cast of characters, namely that of Charles Brandon, who Henry elevated to 1st Duke of Suffolk. So Charles Brandon was Henry's best bro. Brandon's father was with Henry Tudor at the Battle of Bosworth when they killed Richard III, and young Charles had grown up in Henry VII's court. He enjoyed great favor with the king and further proved himself with military victories in France. And the two spent a lot of time together hunting and playing sports because, again, they were best bros. Now, in 1515, Henry VIII had married off his younger sister, Mary Tudor, to the old king of France. Mary was heartbroken by this. She and Henry had grown up together, unlike their older brother Arthur and their older sister Margaret, and she and Henry were particularly close. She'd been hoping for a love match, and Mary was very beautiful. And as a royal princess, Harry could use a marriage to his advantage. She was 18, and Louis XII of France was 52, which apparently was considered very old for that time period. Anyway, she begrudgingly agreed, but on the condition that when the old king died, Henry would let her marry whomever she liked. I think Henry kind of laughed that off and agreed without thinking it would actually happen. Mary was, in fact, in love with Charles Brandon. Everyone knew this, including Henry. When the old king of France died, after they had only been married a mere three months, Henry sent Brandon to retrieve his sister, the Dowager Queen of France, and explicitly told him he was forbidden to propose to her. Which I think is hilarious, because obviously when you say something like that, what is the first thing that person will do? And yes, indeed, he married Mary Tudor, and Henry was livid. Brandon had effectively committed treason by going against the order of his king and marrying a royal princess without permission. Now, why this long aside? Why have I spent this much time setting up Charles Brandon and Mary Tudor? That would be because guess who was made of honor to Mary in France and who would later be championed in her quest for the crown by Charles Brandon? A charismatic young woman named Anne Boleyn. Also, another fun fact about this love match, Their granddaughter was none other than Lady Jane Grey, who briefly got the crown after Edward VI died in an attempt to keep Mary and Elizabeth off the throne. Now, Anne Boleyn, where to begin? I guess the best place to start is a little disclaimer. There's not much that we know about Anne Boleyn that comes from her own words. Her letters have been lost to history, probably destroyed after her execution. And honestly, she wasn't super well-liked at court, so a lot of depictions of her are clouded by the judgments of others. And I'm not gonna go too in-depth about Anne's life and history because, spoiler alert, we're actually gonna do a whole episode on her next month, so be sure to tune in. We'll go more in-depth next month, but here's the SparkNotes version of Anne's story. It's not known when or how Henry met Anne. However, in all the various depictions of them in movies, TV, and books, there's some pretty great ideas. Sometime in the early 1520s, Anne became one of the ladies in waiting to Queen Catherine. Anne had just come from the court of King Francis as lady in waiting to his wife, Queen Claude. Henry had a bit of a rival- rivalry with Francis, not just because he was French, but also because Francis was a young, virile king as well, who not only had heirs, but also had a grand court with Renaissance artists, philosophers, and writers. Henry was a worldly man who definitely succumbed to envy. Anyway, I bring all this up because when Anne returned to English court, she was something of an it girl. She was extremely fashionable and refined. She kept her French style, which all the English women at court soon tried to emulate. She was a good conversationalist and a great dancer. So while she wasn't considered the most beautiful woman at court, she had that je ne sais quoi. Now, some years before, her older sister Mary had actually been Henry's mistress before she was married off and sent away. Armed with that knowledge, when Henry began showing interest in Anne, she played it very cool and was coy and mysterious, keeping him on his toes. Which for the type of guy Henry was, you know, who grew up believing in courtly love and heroism, this was completely irresistible and made him want her more. In fact, when he was ready to make his declaration of love to her, Henry had commissioned a series of four golden brooches. The first was a Venus and Cupid. The second, a woman holding a man's heart. The third, a man lying in a woman's lap. And fourth, a woman holding a crown. Because Henry was clearly the king of subtlety as well. Seeing how her sister had been treated, Anne refused to be his mistress and insisted he put a ring on it, which good for her. They kept their back and forth discreet for a while, but it was only a matter of time before the court knew. Henry became fixated on the idea that his marriage to Catherine wasn't lawful based on the biblical text from Leviticus, and he wanted a way out without angering Catherine's nephew, Charles V, who was not only the king of Spain, but also the Holy Roman Emperor, who at this time controlled the Pope. Now, as Henry's number one fixer, Cardinal Wolsey was chosen to find a solution for the king's great matter, as it was referred to. However, Anne and Wolsey hated each other, just absolutely loathed. Around the time that Henry had first developed feelings for Anne, she was secretly engaged to a nobleman named Henry Percy. Wolsey put an end to this, what many believed to be under the direction of Henry himself, although it was claimed that Percy's father had found out and wanted Anne gone. So you've got Wolsey, a cardinal trying to convince the Pope to grant the king an annulment, which the Pope definitely did not want to give, but he also didn't want to drag England's powerful king. So for seven whole years, the issue was in limbo. This was absolute torture for Catherine, who was obviously bereft when she found out her husband that she'd been married to for 24 years was trying to divorce her, yet Anne was still one of her ladies in waiting. Anne, who was a pretty moody person on a good day, was frustrated because there was no guarantee she'd get to marry the king, and she was already in her mid to late twenties. These were her prime marriage years, and if it didn't work out, she'd be a spinster. Then you've got Henry, who's not only used to getting his way, but also has the Pope, all the monarchs of Europe, two proud women, his court, and his entire country all yelling at him at once to stop the madness. But once this train left the station, it was impossible to stop. Catherine refused to go quietly into the night. Henry ended up having to get rid of Wolsey since he failed in his mission and appointed Thomas Cranmer to the Archbishop of Canterbury and got him to annul the marriage. Henry was promptly excommunicated by the Pope, but he finally got his way. Catherine was banished from court and he married Anne, which was actually kind of amazing for me to learn because I thought Catherine had died before they actually got together. But no, Catherine was still alive. And in fact, she only died a few months before Anne. Once Henry and Anne were married, Anne grew more bold in her behavior. She was often found yelling at the king and disobeying him. So the spark of their love affair began to wane. It didn't help that the child she bore was a girl. A girl, I should mention, that grew up to be Queen Elizabeth I, which is another factoid I always forget. I seriously can't believe Henry VIII was her dad. Anyway, Anne had a series of miscarriages and that, coupled with her behavior and Protestant tendencies, meant that she was going to have to go. After all that trouble, Henry had Anne executed on trumped up charges of witchcraft, adultery, and incest with her beloved brother George. She was executed when Elizabeth was just two years old. The final mercy Henry granted her was bringing in an expert swordsman from France to kill her instantly. Chapter 4 Bound to Obey and Serve. With so much personal family and relationship drama, you're probably wondering what exactly did Henry get done? His big focus was the Reformation. Interestingly, Henry himself remained a Catholic. He just didn't recognize the Pope's authority, instead believing himself to be the head of the church. He continued studying religious matters and writing his own doctrines. And he was actually against both Lutheranism and Protestantism, instead wanting a hybrid of his religion with the old. He also had increasingly become reliant on Thomas Cromwell, who had previously worked for Cardinal Wolsey. Cromwell had also been a champion for Anne Boleyn. The two tried to convince Henry to make greater reforms to the church, but Cromwell had turned on Anne as a matter of his own survival, and it's believed he was largely the reason she was executed. She was still very much in the king's favor up until about three months before her death. In fact, many assume that because she gave birth to a stillborn boy right before her execution, that that was the final straw. Actually, Henry grew closer to her after that happened, maybe because he had a slight part in it. The king was still very much into jousting, and in a tournament in 1536, he fell off his horse and was unconscious for two hours, and also received a serious wound to his leg, which is important to remember. Another theory is that Anne walked into a room in which Jane Seymour was sitting on Henry's lap. The shock of this reportedly put Anne into early labor. Now, evidence... Which I say with air quotes, about her infidelities was brought to the king by Cromwell, and most of it has easily been disproven by historians. Cromwell wanted to prove himself invaluable to the king and proposed the idea of the dissolution of England's abbeys and monasteries, which by this point had saved up considerable wealth. By doing this, all that money would then flow directly to the king. Anne Boleyn, however, didn't want the money to go to the crown and instead believed it should go to charity. This is what put them on a collision course, even though Cromwell had been instrumental in obtaining the annulment of Henry's marriage to Catherine. See, I couldn't help myself. I had to get some more in there about my girl, Anne. But moving right along, however, just one day, as in 24 hours, after Anne lost her life, Henry was betrothed to Jane Seymour, the daughter of a country knight and one of the ladies-in-waiting to both Anne Boleyn and Catherine of Aragon. Jane had been at court since possibly 1527 under Queen Catherine, but it wasn't until Henry had visited her ancestral home at Wolf Hall that he noticed her. Catherine of Aragon had been pious and haughty in the way that only a true born and raised queen could be. Anne was coy, but also had violent moods. When Henry met quiet, timid Jane, he was pretty smitten. Here was a woman that would just submit to him, which I roll. Anyway, it depends which historian you side with to decide whether Jane was a meek little pushover or was conspiring for the crown at least a little bit. Eustace Chapuis, who was a major player as the Spanish ambassador, I just didn't have a lot of time to get to him, he wrote to his king that Jane was no beauty. So what was it about Jane that had Henry so enamored? Well, apparently after he met Jane at Wolf Hall, he sent her a letter asking her to be his mistress and included some gold coins in it. She refused it and sent it back with the message that she had no greater riches than her honor, which she would not injure for a thousand deaths. Henry really was the kind of guy who loved the chase, and this show of virtuousness sealed the deal for him. Jane really was virtuous and meek, but some historians posit that she was aware of Henry's intentions and conducted herself to advance herself and family, which, I mean, mostly makes sense, except when you stop to think about how things went for your predecessors. As Queen Jane was strict about protocol and very pious, she brought Princess Mary, who is now Lady Mary after being disinherited, back to court and helped repair her relationship with her father. She also allowed Elizabeth back at court, but didn't have a bond with her the way she did Mary. Jane wanted to get back to the basics and didn't really allow lots of entertainments the way that Anne had. The only time she ever tried to insert herself into politics was during a big uprising called the Pilgrimage of Grace. You see, a lot of English people at the time were very upset about Henry's dissolution of the abbeys and monasteries. A large uprising ensued, which Henry ruthlessly crushed, and Jane begged Henry to not follow through with his plans. It's been posited that she still held to the Catholic faith, which would make sense since she was so friendly with Mary. Henry simply reminded her of Anne Boleyn's fate, and Jane never inserted herself again. The two were married for 17 months when she gave birth to Edward VI, Henry's long sought after legitimate son and heir. The king was elated and the baby prince received a royal welcome with festivities in his honor. But the jubilation was short-lived. Two weeks after giving birth, Jane Seymour died. Now, I had always assumed that she just died in childbirth, so like immediately after giving birth but apparently she was fine immediately after the birth and didn't get sick for some days later. I listened to an interesting podcast making the case that she died of a pulmonary embolism as a complication of how they cared for women after childbirth. I'll talk about that more in the recommendation section and link to it. Henry was grief stricken and shut himself in his room for days before re-emerging. He wore black for months and did not consider marrying again for three whole years which for him, whoa there, Henry, that's some restraint. Despite the fact that she never had a coronation, Jane was the only one of Henry's wives to receive a queen's funeral and is the only one buried beside him at St. George's Chapel at Windsor Castle. Chapter five, marriages four and five. Okay, everyone, so that's three wives down, three more to go. Again, you may be wondering, hey, Henry's the king. What's he doing that's actually kingly? Well, remember how I said he fell from his horse in a jousting accident and severely injured his leg? The leg was ulcerous and would routinely swell and have to be drained. Up until this point, at the age of 44, Henry had been extremely active and physically fit, but the pain from his leg ulcer prevented him from activity, and that was when he started to put on extreme amounts of weight. It affected his mood and demeanor as well. Prior to this, Henry had always been suspicious, but he became increasingly paranoid, not just about what was going on with the other monarchs of Europe, but also the nobles that surrounded him. While he had had people executed prior to the late 1530s, from 1530 to the end of his reign, he increasingly had his opponents either locked in the Tower of London or beheaded, usually both. In terms of what he did for the country, though his reasons were always motivated by self-interest, he did lay the groundwork for modern Britain. Parliament was prominent, and while he basically had them vote on whatever he wanted, everything he did went through Parliament, as opposed to the old feudal system. Parliament, in turn, would later limit the English monarchy to what it is today, a constitutional monarchy. Henry also began to invest big in England's navy, this would prove instrumental in his daughter Elizabeth's reign as England became the most powerful colonizers on the planet. Additionally, by breaking with Roman Catholicism and starting the Church of England, it made England truly self-reliant and gave the country its own distinct identity. So I guess you could say Henry was kind of a bridge between the medieval and the modern ways of ruling. He was truly of the Renaissance era. Three years after the death of Jane Seymour, Henry was open to the idea of marrying again. Getting his long-desired son wasn't enough. He wanted spares in the event that anything happened to Edward. Thomas Cromwell saw this as an opportunity to make an alliance to protect England from the threat of Spain and France, which had both become increasingly powerful. Cromwell pushed Henry to marry Anne of Cleves, the daughter of a German duke. Henry had his painter, Hans Holbein, travel to paint Anne's likeness with the instruction to be as realistic as possible. The portrait set back was very fair and Henry agreed to the marriage. However, when Anne finally made it to England and the king met her for the first time, Henry was furious. He compared her to a horse and complained that she is nothing fair and has very evil smells about her, because he was a mature king. Anne was not well read and couldn't speak English. So not only was she not pretty enough for him, he didn't find her challenging in the way he did his other wives. He couldn't back out of the marriage, though, because that would have been a political disaster for their alliance. He went through with the marriage, but immediately sought a way out. Henry was especially angry with Cromwell for the match and had him beheaded for treason. Just like that. Anne, for her part, was pragmatic because she knew what had happened to her predecessors. She complied with the king's desire for an annulment and he paid her off in wealth and castles. And fun fact, she survived Henry and all his other wives. Because remember, we've still got two more. Funny enough, they actually grew to become good friends and she was known at court as the king's beloved sister. She was close with his daughters and generally treated like an actual sister, so good for her. Now we come to Catherine Howard. And if you're like, What is it with this guy and marrying all these women with the same name? You're not alone. Because when it was all said and done, he was married to three Catherines, two Ann's, and one Jane. Maybe that was another reason why he liked Jane the best. Henry found Catherine Howard, where he found all of his replacement wives, in his current wife's group of ladies-in-waiting. Catherine Howard was just 16 or 17 years old when she married Henry. Her family was of noble pedigree. In fact, she was a first cousin of Anne Boleyn but her father wasn't the first son and was poor. After her mother died, she was sent to live as a ward for the Dowager Duchess of Norfolk, who was her father's stepmother, and she also took in large numbers of poor yet aristocratic children. There, she wasn't really supervised, and due to the influence of older girls in the Duchess's care, became very permissive and flirtatious with men. At 13 years old, Her 36-year-old music teacher molested her and later was the one who gave evidence against her at her trial. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Henry was at this point 49 years old, depressed, growing heavier, and living with extreme chronic pain. Catherine was beautiful and vivacious with a love of beauty and a passion for music. Though she wasn't well-educated, Henry was smitten and found great joy and comfort being with her. He lavished her with gifts and called her his rose without a thorn. Poor Catherine was just a child, however, and no one had ever really looked out for her or anything like that, so she was super naive. She carried on a dalliance with Thomas Culpepper, one of the king's favorite courtiers. This seems to have been known by everyone at court but the king. People from her past, who knew about her flirtations as a child, began to come to court to blackmail her for lucrative positions at court. This poor child, a child, was in way over her head. As you may recall, adultery against the king was treason, punishable by death. Henry was absolutely enraged beyond anything anyone had ever seen from him. The legend goes that when she was arrested, Catherine broke free of her captors and ran through what is now called the Haunted Gallery at Hampton Court Palace, screaming for Henry. The guards captured her and she never saw Henry again. To this day, people report seeing the ghost of the screaming queen at Hampton Court Palace. I heard that story when I went to Hampton Court back in 2012, so I just needed to slide that in there. The night before Catherine's execution, she requested the block be brought to her chamber so that she could practice laying her head upon it. Chapter six, a weary king. After the latest queen's death, you'd think Henry would just call it a day, but no. He soon grew interested in Catherine Parr, a 30-year-old scholarly widow with Protestant ideas. He had known of Catherine his whole life, since her family members had all served the Tudor crown in various capacities. When he first became interested in Catherine, her second husband was still alive, but it was clear he was not long for the world. Catherine had secured for herself a place in Lady Mary's household because they had been friends in earlier years, and Catherine's mother had also been a friend to Queen Catherine of Aragon, So many Catherines, you guys, so many. At this point, the king was sickly and often depressed. Henry had always been a hypochondriac, which I thought I was bad about that, but he was another level. He had things washed for him multiple times a day and things like that. His chronic pain, morbid obesity, and his approaching mortality made the king search for a bride to be his companion and nurse. He was done with courtly love, and by this time, Pretty much just hated women because of how they treated him, which is laughable, but that was the mindset. Catherine Parr was actually interested in Thomas Seymour, who is Jane Seymour's brother and would become a pretty scandalous, creepy fellow in the year after Henry's death. It pains me to not be able to tell you that whole story, but there was a whole situation where he tried to marry Elizabeth even though he was married to Catherine Parr after Henry had died. You really, really need to go look that story up. Anyway, Despite her infatuation with Thomas Seymour, Catherine was pragmatic. She knew she could not refuse the king, and I'm sure at this point she figured he'd probably be dead soon anyway. They were married in 1543, and their marriage was mostly harmonious and companionable. The only hitch, which is actually kind of a large hitch to we of modern sensibilities, was when her enemies at court, who were aware of her radical Protestant beliefs, had an arrest warrant brought against her. She was able to save herself because she found out in advance and threw herself at Henry's feet and apologized. Despite his streak of ruthlessness, Henry was pretty susceptible to flattery and could be forgiving. He let it go and the queen was safe. During this time, Catherine, like Jane before her, did her best to restore unity to the Tudor family. She convinced Henry to let Mary and Elizabeth back into the line of succession, and he agreed. By act of parliament, both girls were brought back into the fold behind Edward VI, All three of Henry's children would end up ruling. The last years of Henry's life were gloomy as his friends began to die around him. After a mild victory in France, which Henry had rallied to lead, his super best friend Charles Brandon died, and Henry was extremely sad. He even paid out of his own pocket for Brandon to have a state funeral, and he was laid to rest in St. George's Chapel in Windsor Castle. Eustace Chapuis, who had been the Spanish ambassador all these years, was also unwell. He retired to Spain, and the king was genuinely sad to see him go. Despite contentious issues such as the later years of his marriage to Catherine of Aragon and his treatment of Mary, the two had been friendly. Henry was by now so large, with so much pain in his legs, that he had to use mechanical devices to help him get into and out of bed, as well as early forms of wheelchairs to move about. This was a huge indignity and source of frustration to him as he had always been so fit and strong, the once golden prince. Henry had taken on the title of King of Ireland, the first King of England to do so, and was still actively hoping to unite Scotland with England. He tried to get Edward VI betrothed to Mary, Queen of Scots, who was still an infant. A treaty was signed and everything, but religious differences made the whole thing fall apart, and Mary was instead betrothed to Dauphin of France. Henry remained an active ruler until the end. He died at the age of 55 on January 28, 1547, at the Palace of Whitehall. Edward VI, his only surviving son that he had caused so much grief to conceive, succeeded him, but only lived to age 15. After Edward's death, the Protestant faction tried to deny Mary the crown by installing the nine-day queen, Lady Jane Grey, but Mary was ultimately victorious. And friends... She ruled England with a vengeance, everyone who ever wronged her. She was known as Bloody Mary and ruled for five years before her death, at which point Elizabeth took over and brought stability back to England for her 45-year reign. Okay, so we've just taken a very abbreviated tour of the tumultuous reign of King Henry VIII, and it still captures the imagination of the public 500 years after his death. So was Henry actually a good king worthy of his fame? He was mostly well-liked by his people, at least during the 24 years of his marriage to Catherine. Remember, after the Hundred Years' War and the Wars of the Roses, a lecherous king was definitely preferable to Civil War. Other than various uprisings related to the English Reformation, the people appreciated the stability. Like I said before, he was a bridge between the medieval and the modern. To most historians, His legacy is mixed. On the one hand, he was a patron of the arts, built a formidable navy, brought sweeping religious reform that led to a national identity. But he was also, in his later years, a ruthless tyrant. He suppressed his opponents and killed hundreds for treason. But there's no denying that his personal drama and complicated personality make his story fascinating to this day. Chapter 7, Noble Prince or English Nero. Love him or loathe him, King Henry VIII has fascinated and reviled since his coronation in 1509. Like I said earlier, when I first encountered his actual whole story, not just the school summation that he had eight wives, I was absolutely captivated. But again, I love that historical drama. There's something fantastical and larger than life about the stories of people who have lived before us. I think with Henry, his life is so appealing because it was majestic, but also dangerous. That dichotomy makes for really good drama. So let's talk recommendations. For nonfiction and the purposes of research in this podcast, I relied heavily on Alison Weir's biography, Henry VIII, The King and His Court. All right, guys. Alison Weir is an English historian who also writes historical fiction novels. I was first introduced to her with the book The Lady Elizabeth, which is a fictional account of Elizabeth I's early years. When it comes to historical drama, especially the Tudor time period, Alison Weir is my go-to. Because she's a historian, I trust that I'm getting the truest account, even though it's told from the perspective of the characters, which is obviously a point of view we can't know outside of their letters. Henry VIII, the king and his court, however, is one of her nonfiction offerings, and it goes into exhaustive detail about the king's entire life and reign. It uses a lot of direct quotes and really fleshes out who Henry was and makes a case for how complicated he was as a person. If you like biographies, this one's great. If you don't normally read nonfiction, I mean, it would probably be pretty dry for you. Which is a perfect segue to my first fiction pick. Most of the Tudor historical novels are told from the perspective of women, specifically Henry's wives, which on every other occasion I absolutely love because for the most part, they've all been silenced in death and in history, and Henry looms so large that it's important to tell their stories. However, I realized I had never read a historical novel told from Henry's perspective, which normally I wouldn't seek out because dudes always get the final say over history, but I felt that for this podcast, it would be helpful to kind of see things his way to learn what made him tick, which again, we can't know because it's fiction, but it is entertaining. I found a book that I'd never heard of that was written in 1986 by Margaret George titled The Autobiography of Henry VIII with Notes from His Fool, Will Summers. Quite a mouthful. Now, this book is about 1,000 pages long, so I decided that, one, I'd have to listen to it as an audiobook because I'm a slow reader, and two, that I would only listen through Anne Boleyn since that's my favorite part of the story and the subject for next month's podcast. When I downloaded it and saw that it was 40 hours, I was like, yeah, there's no way that I'm getting through this whole thing. Listeners, I was wrong again. I listened to the whole thing over the course of three weeks while I was working and driving. The book was so compelling and really made Henry VIII a person, as opposed to this caric- caricature that we have of him, like being this enormous, self-indulgent king, eating like crazy and throwing food, which all of that was untrue. He was super clean and finicky. He ate in private and only grew large the last 10 years of his life due to his chronic pain and injuries. Plus, the narrator perfectly acted out Henry and his voice and inflections. They were just they were just super It was interesting to see how his voice changed when Henry was on as king versus when he was talking to people in private. The book is basically Henry telling you his entire life story from his perspective, which when you know what actually happened, makes you not really side with him because he was tyrannical at times, but you at least get why he acted the way he did and made the decisions that he did. The other interesting thing that I liked, and it also brought some levity to the book, was every now and again his jester, Will Summers, would cut in and fact-check the king. I really enjoyed this book, and if you want a historical account with that personalized point of view, this one is it. That was really the only one I found that was specifically about him from his point of view. Wolf Hall and Bring Up the Bodies by Hilary Mantel are also really great, and they're award-winning fictionalized histories of his reign, but they focus on Thomas Cromwell, so you get his point of view as opposed to Henry's. If you haven't read those yet, Get on that because the third and final book just got announced and it's coming out in 2020 and will be titled The Mirror and the Light. There are probably hundreds of books on the Tutors out there, so you can definitely find them easily. And I'll talk more about some of the other titles when we go into Anne Boleyn next month. Now, here's the primetime section. If you have not watched the Tudors with Jonathan Rhys-Meyers as King Henry and Natalie Dormer, who was Marjorie Tyrell in Game of Thrones... You need to remedy that stat. This is probably one of my favorite shows of all time. There were four seasons, and what's great about this show is you get all the info about Henry's reign, but with each episode, roughly an hour, you also get to go in-depth with all the side characters that I barely got to mention in this episode. You get your Cardinal Wolsey, your Charles Brandon, your Mary Tudor, all the Boleyns. Jonathan Rees-Meyers and Natalie Dormer are also perfectly cast as Henry and Anne. I basically believe that they were them. And actually, yeah, I still believe that. They are the reincarnations. The first two seasons are the best, obviously, because once Anne was gone, it was just hurrying through the wives, kind of like we did today. <laughs> but I love how their courtship is por- portrayed, and I love the time spent on Catherine of Aragon and Princess Mary as well. More shows that I only recently watched that I've enjoyed are The White Queen and The White Princess, which both I think are horrible names, but The White refers to The White York Rose, That's what they mean by that. So these two shows are nowhere near the level of the Tudor's acting or production-wise, but they're still pretty entertaining. The White Queen is about the last big struggles in the War of the Roses, and it involved Henry's grandmothers. Then The White Princess was about Elizabeth of York and Henry Tudor. Now, these are based on books by Philippa Gregory, who is basically the queen of Tudor fiction and the most popular historical novels in general. A lot of people love her work. I do not. I prefer Alison Weir because I like my historical fiction to be mostly historical. Gregory takes a lot of liberties. I will say that she heavily uses magic in both of these shows, and I'm here for magic, so I'll allow it. I really enjoyed these because it gave context. I really knew nothing about the events and people right before Henry's reign. And there's a new one, there's a new show out now called The Spanish Princess. That one's about Catherine of Aragon. I haven't seen it yet, but I'm going to watch it next. Notice I haven't recommended The Other Boleyn Girl, which is one of the most famous Tudor novels out there. Again, Philippa Gregory, I'm not a fan, but if you are down with saucy melodrama, then you should totally go for it. If you're more into straight history, check out Alison Weir, and no, I do not know her, and she didn't pay me for this, I just love her. If you're a podcast listener, there are a few episodes I found that I enjoyed from Stuff You Missed in History class, and there's also a podcast called Rude Tudors that was kind of funny. I'll link to all these in the show notes, but most of the podcasts I found were more about tangential events in his reign as opposed to about him himself. All right, dear listeners, I hope you enjoyed hearing about good old King Henry again. And since this episode aired, there are two more recommendations that I'd like to share with you. First off, Wife After Wife by Olivia Hayfield is probably my favorite thing I've read in a while. It starts in the 80s, but it's basically if King Henry and his wives all lived now. It's super fun, and after listening to this podcast, you'll definitely appreciate all the little callbacks and how the author weaves in the different stories. Second, Rex Factor Podcast has an episode on Henry as well as Elizabeth I. It's a UK podcast. And I find the host delightful, and they basically give ratings to monarchs in the hopes of seeing who is the best monarch of all time in the UK. If you're interested, I also have a podcast episode on Anne Boleyn in the archives. It aired in July of 2019, and fun fact, it's my most popular episode of Storical. So I kind of love that Anne Boleyn just totally wins against Henry in the end. Okay, that's all I have today. Get ready to rock like Amadeus because next week we're diving into the life of Mozart.